So um, when I was younger, so when I was sort of in my, you know, being a child and, and a teen, I was very active. I played a lot of sport. So my weight stayed in control pretty well because of what I was doing then. But then I went nursing. Jen Avery reckons she's pretty normal. She was a sporty kid growing up, then decided to become a nurse. She had a child, what Jen calls her miracle child. I, my, our first daughter we always call a miracle because she just happened, randomly happened. We moved. She was um, worried her polycystic ovaries would make it difficult to conceive again. So for the next child, she went to a fertility specialist. Um, with my second child, um, because we were worried about having too big a gap and stuff, we saw a, a, a specialist and he suggested they take some medication and that medication just banged the weight onto me. And and then from then on, that was my downhill slide with, you know, I started to get high blood pressure and then um, insulin resistance and then, you know, bang, I've got type 2 diabetes. Jen is pretty normal, at least in Australia. She's one of nearly 2 million people in the country diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Hi, I'm Tom Melville, and welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places, and perspectives from beyond the big cities. Type 2 diabetes is everywhere in this country and around the world. There could be 700 million cases worldwide in the next 25 years. We've spent the last two years focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic, but type 2 diabetes is getting worse, and it already costs our healthcare system $20 billion a year. Sufferers face a whole range of terrifying complications, including having limbs amputated, strokes, heart attacks, and going blind. But despite the huge burden and rising cases, it's largely preventable. My name's Claire Collins. I'm a laureate professor in nutrition and dietetics at the University of Newcastle. Claire has spent her career working on technologies to improve our nutrition. She explained to me what's happening in our bodies when we develop type 2 diabetes. Once you eat food, it gets digested and absorbed and it appears in your blood as blood sugar. But if you don't use all of that food from that meal you've just consumed, then that blood sugar or glucose has to go somewhere. And so your body goes, right, I've got a perfect place to put that excess blood sugar. I'm going to pack it away into the body's fat stores and we have an endless supply of fat stores an endless ability to be able to pack away any food that we consume that's in excess to our needs but two things go wrong when that happens your pancreas that produce insulin that normally takes that blood sugar off gives it a personal escort down to your stores your body's fat stores it starts to not work as well. And the other problem is that some of that excess body fat ends up getting stored on the muscles that would burn it up. So it's a double-pronged problem that really sets you up for developing overweight and then developing excess body weight or excess adiposity. And now, all of a sudden, you find that you've got type 2 diabetes. The huge increase in diabetes cases is a really recent phenomenon, she tells me, and it all comes down to what we're eating. In Australia, fast food only arrived in the mid-1970s, about 1975. And so people never went out for dinner. What you ate was what you cooked at home 
or maybe you got fish and chips or, you know, if you were wealthy, you might have got a burger from an old-fashioned burger shop. And then in the 1990s, we saw the arrival of foods that came in little packets. And then in the 1990s, portion sizes started to explode and, you know, home delivery started to explode. And then in the 2000s, and particularly in the last five years, we've just got now this explosion of food that's pushed onto you and delivered to your door. So people think it's normal to always be eating and drinking something. And unfortunately, now we're seeing the side effects of that, you know, like poor dietary patterns contribute to four of the five top risk factors for poor health in Australia. So they contribute to weight gain, but they also contribute to high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes and heart disease in general. My name is uh, Dr. Peter Bruckner, and I'm the uh, founder and chair of Defeat Diabetes. Well, my background is I'm a doctor. I'm actually a sports medicine doctor. Um, so I've had a long career in, uh, in sport, looking after various uh, uh, sporting teams, um, you know, national sporting teams, Olympic teams. Peter tells me he was a sports doctor who was reasonably active, even into middle age. He thought he was healthy. Uh, it was about 10 years ago now. I was in Liverpool. Uh, I was actually working for the Liverpool Football Club as their head of sports medicine and sports science. And um, I'd, uh, I'd just turned 60. And, and if you'd asked me then, you know, was I healthy? I'd have said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm healthy you know i uh, i eat a good diet and uh, i exercise regularly and uh, you know i'm healthy the the reality was i wasn't quite as healthy as i thought i was you know for a start i had a family history of type 2 diabetes so my father had developed type 2 diabetes at exactly that age secondly i was overweight bordering on obese so uh, i uh, i'd probably like many middle-aged men and uh, you know i consider 60 middle-aged i used to think it was old but now i think it's middle-aged um about many middle-aged men, I, I'd probably put on half a kilogram a year for 30 years. You know, just slowly getting thicker around the waist. You know, my kids are starting to poke me in the guts and say, you know, come on, Dad, how about it? And, and I'd shrug my shoulders and say, well, hang on a minute. You know, I'm on this low-fat diet and, and I exercise and so on. Despite thinking he was healthy, he had a fatty liver, a big risk factor in type 2 diabetes, and was pre-diabetic. Peter had, like many people, thought that his low-fat diet was enough to keep him healthy. He told me that since the 1970s, we in the West have focused on low-fat diets. But it's also since that time that our weight has gotten out of control and diabetes prevalence has increased. He was surprised to find out that fat wasn't necessarily the culprit. You know, I'd always assumed that we'd gone onto this sort of low-fat sort of regime, you know, whatever we did 30, 40 years ago, on the basis of, of, you know, good science and research and everything. And the more I looked into it, the more I realised it was on... No scientific basis at all. It had more more to do with money and power and, and the US agricultural industry, as far as I could make out. So I thought, no, that's just, you know, it was quite disturbing because, you know, when you, you know, you, I remember reading a book and I'd put it down at night and I said, no, this couldn't be true. Like we couldn't have got this wrong. You know, the, we're all on this on this diet, you know, or this, this way of eating and, and it's suggesting it's totally wrong. So I decided I'd have a go myself. So uh, I thought, well, you know, let's, let's do a little experiment on myself. So I, uh, I did a three-month trial where on, the first, on day one I did all the blood tests and, and jumped on the scales and so on. And then for three months I stopped eating uh, sugars. So I stopped eating, uh, you know, drinking soft drinks or fruit juices or anything like that. I stopped uh, eating uh, starches, so no rice, pasta, potato, bread and so on. And, um, and went back to eating probably the, the way that my grandparents ate, you know, with, with meat and fish and fruit and veg and, uh, you know, lots of, of, of uh, green veg, no, no sort of potatoes or anything like that. Um, 
dairy, you know, went back to full fat dairy and eggs, all the things that have been demonized for the last 40 years. So I did that for, for three months. And um, the first thing I noticed was that I stopped being hungry. He'd eat a good breakfast of eggs and bacon and maybe some avocado and then wouldn't feel hungry until dinner time. He was surprised, but began to feel better than he had in years. So I went from eating three meals and three snacks a day to probably eating two meals a day, which is what I what I eat now. Um, and uh, then I, then every week I'd weigh myself, and you know the first week or two you think, oh, you know, just a bit of you know a bit of good luck or fluids or something like that. But I just kept losing weight week after week after week. Um, I also felt more energetic, I slept better, I, you know, I, I concentrated better. I just and, and my exercise capacity improved. I felt like I'd ru- I could run all day after a few weeks. So. At the end of that 13 weeks, the end of the three months, I had lost 13 kilograms in 13 weeks uh, without even trying. Like, you know, I hadn't been hungry once. I'd eaten, you know, as much as I wanted to. I'd just changed what I ate and I'd lost 13 kilograms in 13 weeks. Uh, all my blood tests came back to normal. My fatty liver that I'd had for 10 years had disappeared completely. Peter's diet involved getting rid of most of the carbs he was eating for the first few months. He recognises that probably isn't for everyone all the time, and not even he is on it anymore. But it helped him realise that fat isn't necessarily the problem. It's carbs and sugar. We're getting fatter and sicker every year, and uh, and I believe that uh, that diet is the major factor. People talk about exercise, and we actually exercise pretty much the same amount now that we did uh, you know, a generation ago. What's really changed is diet, and particularly the emphasis on processed and ultra-processed foods. Um, and that inevitably involve high levels of sugar, uh, vegetable oil, starches, and so on. So we eat very differently to the way that our grandparents uh, used to eat. They would eat real food. You know, they'll be eating uh, you know, meat and fish and eggs and dairy and fruit and vegetables and so on. You know, we're eating chemical concoctions of uh, that aren't even you know aren't even food really uh, most of the time, and it's cheap. It's uh, tasty because it's got lots of sugar and salt in it, and uh, and it's addictive. So you know our diet has dramatically uh, deteriorated over a, a, even just a, one generation. It's it's quite remarkable, and uh, you can see you know that uh, that the rates of obesity and, and chronic diseases like type two diabetes start climbing around about sort of uh, that time forty years ago where. We just got the diet thing completely wrong. Claire agrees that we've gotten diet wrong over the last few decades, and she has no doubt that it's contributing to diabetes. She says, though, that not all carbs are created equal and that eradicating all carbs mightn't be possible or even desirable. It's definitely a recent phenomena to be super scared of eating foods that are rich in carbohydrate. There was definitely a trend in the 70s to try and avoid carbohydrates, but the modern version of it, the 2000, you know, and, and beyond um, fear of carbohydrates, I think has really come about directly parallel to this increase in ultra-processed foods. So when you look at the foods that didn't exist last century, they're generally high in processed carbohydrates. So they're high in added sugars, and sugars are just a processed form of carbohydrate. But they're also high in fat and salt. And those three things together hang out in the ultra-processed foods. So when people say, oh, I'm avoiding carbs, I'm giving up carbs, they have to avoid processed foods and ultra-processed foods. And unfortunately, they also end up avoiding some of the really healthy carbohydrates, and that's like bread, some of the vegetables, and definitely fruit. 
And the sad thing about that is that the unprocessed foods that are rich in carbohydrates, they contain a lot of the nutrients. They contain the dietary fibers. They contain vitamins like vitamin C, and they contain um, some trace minerals and, and other minerals as well. Claire tells me that there isn't a one-size-fits-all diet we should roll out worldwide, but there are some lessons we can learn. What you can say is about the healthiest dietary patterns in the world is that they do have some common features. So let's have a look at two of the most extreme ones, and they would probably be like the dietary patterns in Japan, where there's lots and lots of vegetables and fruit and a big variety of that, and they actually also do consume a lot of legumes, and legumes are the things like lentils and baked beans. And yet they um, have a very, very low fat intake, hardly any fat at all. Whereas the other equally healthy and at the other extreme of difference in fat intake is the Mediterranean diet that most people have heard of. And the Mediterranean diet is actually quite high in fat, but it's healthy fats like olive oil. But they also have a big variety of vegetables and fruits. And like the Japanese dietary pattern, they consume small amounts of meat. So it's my courses for courses. What type of foods do you like to eat most of? And there's a healthy dietary pattern aligned to it. There is no country in the world where the healthy dietary pattern is full of what are called ultra-processed foods. Now, these are foods that come in packets and boxes and have got an ingredient list to make your eyes water because, you know, there's 10, 12, 15, 20 different ingredients in there and um, foods or items that you'd never find alone in nature. Peter says we're not even really conscious of what we're eating a lot of the time. And it's not always obvious what the healthy choice is. There's all sorts of hidden sugar. You know, we sort of get sugar, put sugar in your tea, and we sort of get soft drinks are full of sugar and so on. But, you know, things like fruit juice, you know, that we're always told are healthy. It's actually full of sugar. Um, you know, fruit yogurts, you know, again, supposedly healthy, but full of sugar. Muesli bars, uh, sauces, you know, uh, barbecue sauces and things like that are full of sugar. So, you know, there's a lot of sugar out there that people don't realise that, uh, that we're, we're keen on. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, again, if you, if you do have, you know, diabetes or you're heading that direction and so on, you know, you've got to cut down on, on starches and, uh, and things like that. But yeah, I eat a little bit of, uh, you know, good quality sourdough bread, you know, the, you know, have a smashed avocado or something like that, you know, um, but I don't eat any, any, uh, highly processed carbohydrates. They're the, the real enemy are the sort of the white breads and the things like that, that, um, you know, are, are highly processed that's why they're they're tasty they're cheap um and and you know that's very addictive to uh to have those things but you know we've we've got to eat uh eat you know real foods it's, it's a real food diet really you know we're just getting back to to real foods rather than processed foods claire thinks there are important things we can do to start improving our health she believes that to begin with people need to be taught how to cook and we need to break down the notion that eating well is really expensive that's really the story that's behind this website that we've created, which is called No Money, No Time. And we created that in direct response to some of these issues that we found is that, you know, young adults, especially when they first leave home, go, they told us that they actually do care about nutrition, but the main issues for them is many don't know how to cook 
and they are time poor and they actually have really limited funds and really basic kitchens. So what we've shown in the resources we've created for people using that website is that you can actually feed yourself or a, a family with young kids cheaper than a junk food diet, but you have to have the know-how. And that's, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you don't leave school knowing how to balance a food budget or knowing how to cook really healthy foods. A lot of the focus on diabetes prevention is put on the individual. We have to take responsibility for our own health, the argument goes. But Claire isn't convinced that that's the whole answer. Focusing only on individuals means that those who are least able to cook, prepare, shop, manage a food budget are more vulnerable to type 2 diabetes. And that's why you see the prevalence is higher. It's higher in the Hunter region and it's higher in Western Sydney and it's higher among refugee populations or immigrant populations. So you're spot on. We're really letting Australians down by allowing them to have all this advertising and promotion foisted on them. And, you know, if a good parallel is probably something like cigarette smoking, you know, we know it's not good for us. So the product price is really high. It's not allowed to be sold to children. It can't be advertised. No one's supposed to take money off those companies. And yet we do the exact opposite with ultra-processed foods that are directly linked not just to type 2 diabetes but to heart disease and some specific cancers, not only do we let them advertise, we invite them in to sporting clubs and sporting events. We hand out vouchers as rewards for children, um, you know, for um, you know, good behaviour or for participating in sport. It's just an absolute crazy, crazy situation we're not really protecting children at all. There are some policies that might help. Peter argues that there are legislative changes the government could introduce. I don't blame any individual for, you know, for, for these, these issues. You know, I mean, we live in what we call an obesogenic society. You know, I mean, if, if there's a lot, of, uh, if a lot of money and a lot of influences go into uh, into uh, poor quality food and uh, and so on. So you know, it, it's I don't blame anyone for uh, for the for these uh, issues individually. I mean, I think as a society, we've got to take responsibility for it. And and, and yes, you know, we, no, nobody likes Big Brother sort of stuff. But I think you know, governments have got to got to step in. It's costing, you know, it's costing all of us, not just in our health but financially. I mean, you know, that's it's something like twenty billion dollars a year the cost of uh, of diabetes in Australia. That's just one disease. You know, I mean, uh, so we can't afford to be as unhealthy as, as we are and we're getting sicker and fatter as a as a nation. So, you know, the government has got to stop making sort of, you know, token sort of uh, noises about prevention and so on and they've got to get serious. But, you know, the the, the problem is that the uh, the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry are very powerful lobbyists and, uh, you know, as soon as you, you saw a few years ago someone mentioned a sugar tax and all of a sudden, you know, the the food industry uh, went into, into action and, and got the nationals, uh, you know, to say we're never going to have a you know, sugar tax and, and things like that. And other countries have found it to be very effective. You know, we've got to get better at, at promoting healthy diets in schools and at hospitals. We've got to get better at, uh, at limiting advertising to, to children. The industry, unsurprisingly, isn't keen on the introduction of sugar taxes. The Australian Beverages Council, the body which represents the drinks industry to government, argues that there's no evidence sugar taxes are working where they've been tried. 
Countries like the UK, Denmark and Norway have failed to see a decline in obesity and type 2 diabetes since their sugar taxes were introduced. Further, the Council told Voice of Real Australia that Australians are making healthier choices without government intervention, at least when it comes to sugary drinks, and we're consuming a lot less sugar than we were 20 years ago as a result. Jen Avery, who we heard from earlier, has been able to manage her diabetes with support from some of Peter's resources, and she's doing really well. Not only is type 2 diabetes preventable with the right diet, you can also manage your symptoms with the right diet. She's been able to get off insulin and keep her weight under control. At the beginning of last year, um, I was able to come off insulin and it was because I discovered that my body responds to low carbohydrate, high fat, and that's how I, I can lose weight. That's how I can manage my blood sugars along with the medication that's gradually changing. That's been really good. But sort of early last year, I was able to come off the insulin and I really had only been doing that low carb, high fat for probably from the October. And I think it was February or March that I was able to come off the insulin. So that, that really was terribly encouraging for me. And when I stopped taking the insulin, it was kind of like I had this light turn on in my brain about, you know, let's just stop the anxiety. Let's stop beating yourself up if you're not doing things exactly how you should be doing it. And let's just, you know, if you do something that possibly was a bit naughty and you've got a reading that's not wonderful, don't beat yourself up. Just get back on the horse and then keep doing what you're doing. And that's since, so I've had this magic change in how I think about it. Whilst I still have got a lot of concern for looking after my bits and pieces like my eyes and my feet and my kidneys and my heart, all that sort of stuff, I don't have the same degree of anxiety attached to it as when I was in that cycle of, you know, being on the insulin, putting on weight, um, you know, having the insulin increase. And look, I've been on and off insulin a couple of times. Um, for various reasons and um, but you know this time it seems to be working. Having a chronic illness like type 2 diabetes is scary and Jen tells me there are ups and there are downs. The last couple of months have been tough but she's optimistic. I feel I feel pretty good. Now I'm going to be brutally honest with you now Tom and like the last two weeks um, we've had my father's been incredibly unwell we've had him in intensive care and all the rest of it and of course you know I kind of reverted into my usual you know when I'm stressed what do I do I don't particularly watch what I eat particularly well but having just said that like we've got him back home he's slowly improving the stress is decreasing and so of course I'm starting to get back on the horse again and do things properly so you know it but it's it's so hard to get over that you know, if you've always relied on food as being your crutch, it's hard to get rid of it. And I guess, you know, I guess I sort of food food can be an addiction, and and but not food in general, but making poor poor choices can be an addiction. And um, but I'm I'm learning to make lots and lots of better choices. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. 
If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia, and you can follow me on Twitter at tommelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in Canberra on Ngunnawal country. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to Janine Graham and Anita Beaumont. Our editors are Emily Sweet and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast.